welcome to our virtual Global Outreach Festival. It'll be a little bit different this year, but we still want to talk about proclaiming the good news of Jesus around the world. That's what it's really all about. I'm Roger Edrington, and I'm glad to be with you today. I'm wearing my sort of uh, wild Indian best to give some some honor to people of different cultures here. And you'll hear a little bit of my story uh, in India in particular and other places in the world where I've been in mission. But today, I want to talk about words. Words have power to change things, for good or ill. I wonder if you've ever been changed by words. Just sounds that come out of your mouth, through your vocal cords, with breath. Just words. Words have the power to tear your heart wide open by someone who said something hateful. Words also have the power to pry people's souls heart open wide by someone who said something kind. Words may have stirred you to action, to take a risk, to get a new job, to go out for a team, or do something very specific, something significant in your life. Words can bring life-changing news. You're pregnant. Your child has a life-threatening disease. You just inherited $5 million. We're moving across the country. Words can express deep desires and commitments. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When you hear the words, I have a dream, they reverberate all over our land. When someone said, will you marry me? It made a difference in your life. Especially if you said yes, but even if you said no. And when you first understood those words, Jesus loves you and wants to give you the opportunities to start your life all over again. Your life changed. Tiny little words, just sounds, have big meaning that can change people's lives. It's not surprising then that John, the Apostle John, he described Jesus as the Word, the Word, the communication of God, the one who takes the message of Almighty God and communicates it to us on earth, and yet is still God. The word takes something in God's mind, in God's heart, in God's whole being, and it communicates it to us through Jesus' life, through his action, and through Jesus' words. It communicates that Jesus is full of grace and truth. I wonder how Peter's life was changed when Jesus said to him, follow me. I wonder how that tax collector Matthew's life was changed when he was sitting at his tax collecting business, just just doing his work, when Jesus said to him, follow me. Nicodemus' life was changed forever when Jesus told him, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. A lonely, 
rejected woman at the well uh, could never be the same after Jesus gave those puzzling words to her at first that, that he would give her living water so that she would never be thirsty again. Or what about those two dejected men on the road to Emmaus after Jesus had been killed? They were destroyed. They, they were dejected. They, they were giving up. They didn't recognize that the stranger who came up to talk with them and walk with them was the resurrected Jesus until they broke bread together. They looked back after Jesus was gone and they they remembered the stirring power of Jesus' words as he opened the words of scripture to them. Those words of Jesus made their hearts burn. Words burn in people's hearts. They, They change people's soul. They give them a new direction. So what's your story with words? Did someone tell you the greatest story ever told and it changed your life forever? How did it happen? Was it somebody at school or a member of your family? Or, or was it a neighbor who invited you to come and hear someone speak, to hear words that maybe you'd never heard before? Or did you pick up a dusty copy of, of this book with so many words that point to the word of God, the good news of Jesus. Or perhaps for some of you hearing my words today, you're wondering, could these words be the truth? Could they even change my life forever? And yet what if someone knew these words and decided not to speak these words to you? I keep hearing people say, you know, I I never heard the gospel of Jesus until I was 30 or 40 or, or even 50 or 60 years old. Nobody ever told me about the good news of Jesus. And here in San Jose, where we have the Bible, we have Bible apps, we have Christian TV and churches all around, and especially online now, there are Christian concerts, there are Christian literature, Christian bookstores, or at least there used to be. And yet, can you believe that right here in the San Jose area, people have never heard a clear presentation of the good news of Jesus? They've never heard those words that have stirred your heart, perhaps, and that you've seen stir the hearts of so many people. Do your neighbors understand this message? Have they had a fair shot at hearing the message of Jesus? Do they know anymore that you used to be at least gone somewhere on Sunday morning? Do your coworkers have a clue about that message which changed your life? What about those in your family? Sure, they, they know you're involved in church, but, but have they heard those same words that transformed you from who you were into who you are now and who you're becoming? Have you given up on them? What about that kid who sits next to you in school or, or next to you in, or, or in the next square on Zoom to you? How about the person who's never once even been in a church building, never once read a portion of the Bible for herself, never once had you or anyone else explain to them what's so good about the good news of Jesus? 
How is he going to hear? Who is going to walk across the room and let her hear the life-changing message of Jesus? Who's going to walk across the street and let your neighbor have the same opportunity that you have? Who's going to walk across the hall and let a friend in the dark have the opportunity to have the light turned on for them? Will it be you? Will it be me? Now we believe that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes, we believe it. Yet how shall they hear? In one of the most complex passages in the New Testament, Paul asks some simple rhetorical questions that that Christians must answer. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So how shall they hear? How are they going to get that message so that they can turn their lives around toward Jesus? Someone either has to walk across the street or fly around the world. Now, all of us can walk across the street or we can pick up the phone or we can we can uh, start a Zoom call with some non-believing friends. And we're summoned by God to do just that. But for those who don't live nearby, that will happen in only one of two ways. Either you go and have someone send you or someone else goes and you send them. So are you a sender or both? I'm afraid there is one other option, that you're not involved in sharing the message of all. And that's the saddest option of all. The question then is, are you going? Are you going to be involved in the message, in, in, in what God has called you to do? We have to decide whether we will be partners with God in his great mission to reach the whole globe. Let's first talk about go. Jesus sends his disciples out in a variety of ways. In one of the first missions out on their own, Jesus tells them, as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And don't take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or staff for for the worker is worth his keep. Now, the mission is always the same. It, It doesn't change. Preach the word of Christ and do the works of Christ. There are two methods of provision for global outreach partners. The first method of provision is God will provide the means. Don't take any money. Don't take any extra provisions. God will provide. Sometime later, Jesus reviewed this experience with them. He said, when I sent you out with purse or bag or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, no, nothing. So the result was they lacked nothing. When God says, go out with nothing, he will provide the means. But later Jesus says, but now if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your sword 
and buy one. That's from Luke 22. So the second method of provision is now they need to go well prepared. Something changed. We don't know exactly what changed in their situation. Maybe Jesus was just trying to teach them different ways of doing this. And God calls people in different situations to do mission in different ways. There's one mission, one message, but with many missionary strategies. Now people today use both these types of methods in provisions. Some are well prepared. They go with committed monthly support, their lives are insured, their health is secured, their retirement is being secured. They have a solid theological education and perhaps they have some practical skills that they can actually use for for some work. They're seemingly prepared for all eventualities. Others go with little or no provisions. This is less popular today for obvious reasons, but these go with no committed money, no insurance, just assurance of God. And some even go with little or no training, though I don't think that's the method that Jesus used because he trained his disciples very well. So each sent person must listen carefully to Jesus' specific word for them. Just because Jesus tells one person to do it one way doesn't mean that that this is a universal truth for all times. And though we tend to think of those uh, going with no provisions as living on faith, in reality, both of them are, are hopefully living on faith if they're following what God has called them to do. To go without training when God calls you to be well prepared is not faith. To require a retirement fund when God calls you to go without is not faith either. When I first heard God's call to me to go to England to be a global outreach worker, I I planned not to talk to anybody about finances. I had just read a book by George Mueller that some of you may have read where, where God just provides for him in an orphanage with hundreds of kids just at the moment when he needed it. And my idea was that when I was eating my last slice of bread, a check in the mail would arrive for $5. But while I was in seminary, a friend there came up to me and said, you know, I hear you're going to England to spread the good news of Jesus. Do you need someone to support you? And I said, well, um, uh, yeah, and I sort of just hemmed and hawed because I didn't want to break my decision. And he added, well, our church wants to support uh, somebody who's going out to do this kind of work in another part of the world. And we also have another church who will come alongside and do that as well. And I talked with them. I went to their church, but I didn't request any money. And over those years, they provided $125 a month, and the other church provided $125 a month as well. And God provided for 12 years without me asking for any money. I just responded and told people what we were doing when we needed. And he provided differently than I expected, and he provided more than those initial $250 a month. But I was never once without. God will provide for us. Every believer must listen to the voice of God. 
This call is not just for special followers of Jesus, those who go to another country, those who are global outreach workers. That is, special believers listen to the voice of God and other people just read the Bible and do whatever they want. No, no. Listening to God, following Jesus, is what being a disciple is all about. Does Jesus want me to carry out my mission here or in another place? Across the street or around the world? To go or not to go? That's the question. And yet, for many, to go or not to go is not a question at all. It's never asked. How are we to hear God's answers if we ask him no questions? Disciples learn the will of the master as they talk to him and as they're open to his direction and they listen to him. Now, why don't people ask this question? Well, I suspect the main reason is fear. Fear that God is going to make me do something awful. After all, that's what God is like. He makes people do something they don't want to do. He will probably call me to do something wild and crazy like like Noah, and I'll probably respond like Jonah and run the other way. If I don't ask, then I won't be like Jonah. Well, this is, of course, a misconception about who God is. God's our Father. We're His children. He loves us, and He provides all that we need. Some of us need challenge rather than comfort. And for others, God may provide comfort and more security. Our Father knows what you need even before you ask. But you don't know what you need if you don't ask him. What does God want from you? Now, another reason probably some people don't ask the question to go or not to go is just because they were never challenged to ask that question for themselves. We'll never hear that question answered out on TV or or in other uh, parts of our culture. So perhaps it's not even a consideration for you to ask that question. Ask God and see what he wants for your life. You've probably all heard a missionary speak about the area to which they were sent. They may have just shown us a slide of the hut in which they live, where the only running water is a crocodile-infested river and the mosquitoes seem as big as your hand and the spiders really are as big as your hand. Then someone asked them, You know, how could you have given up so much to serve the Lord? And the startling reply is, you know, I haven't really given up anything at all. Doing what God wants is much more important than all the comforts in the world. Thirty years ago now, I I sat with a missionary in a fancy hotel in Manila. It it was an unlikely place for him and, and for me to be. His his ministry was with those who lived on the garbage heaps of Manila. He was seeing a great response to the gospel from that unreached people group. But his words for missionaries from the West were stinging. He said, we would not expect significant church planting among the Asian squatter areas from the affluent West. Affluence makes it too hard to live among the poor. And I understand that. 
Because so often we're so interested in our own comfort and safety that we won't take risks for God, that we won't really put our trust in him to provide for us what we need. Doing the will of God is always more important than comfort. And I wonder if some of us merely need to ask God the question today, God, am I where you want me to be or do you want me to go somewhere else? Young people, retired folks, mid-career folks must consider God's will at every stage of their life. And I'm glad that some of our people here at Blossom Valley have actually considered that call and some have responded to go. Some of you have been on short-term missions and some of you have been called to be long-term missionaries, to put your trust in God that way. So how shall they hear? We must go. The other way is how shall they hear? We must send. Sending means resources first. We send our financial resources. Now it's clear that the Christian world has many resources at its disposal. The money of the world, in fact, is largely in the hands of Western Christians, but there's little doubt whether it will be shared out in the way that God wants it to be. Although Christians of any stripe are only 33% of the world's population, we control about 68% of the world's wealth. And this is a great stewardship responsibility, which probably is being squandered. And of this 68% of the world's wealth, we Christians use 99% on ourselves and give 1% to church and any other kind of charities. 5% of the 1% goes to international missions. Is it possible that the very thing we call the blessing of God our wealth, could be to a detriment of the mission of the world, to God's mission in the world. Of course, it wouldn't be the first time that a rich man was called to give what he had to the poor, and he turned away full of sorrow and walked away from following Jesus. Secondly, we also send people resources. One of the most exciting developments in world mission is with third world Christians. Many are no longer merely receiving nations, but are now sending nations. Some of the most effective missionaries in the world are from countries other than the West, especially in view of the continuing declining respect for Americans in some part of the world. Latinos and Filipinos are sending missionaries, global outreach workers, to Arab states. Some of you may know Jeff and Kathy Phillips in Chile. Uh, Chilean Christians are now going to Ecuador and Peru, but also much further to Iraq, to the Kurds in Iraq, and are doing amazing work there. Korea is sending missionaries all over the world now. Third world global outreach workers are about 52% of the missionaries, more than Europe and North America combined. This comes at a time of unprecedented uh, missionary challenges as the church redefines its missionary strategy in global terms. And some of the missionaries from the third world are actually coming 
to the USA to minister to people from their own cultures here, but also to minister to people uh, that are European-American or African-American, people who've lived there all their lives. We are in danger of becoming a country who needs more missionaries than it sins. It's happened before. In England, where the modern missionary movement began with cobbler William Carey, Christianity is very ill and in need of reinforcements. Europe is one of the neediest mission fields in the world. Some of you know that I've been doing short-term missions in India for the last four years. And I returned from India in February, this February, just before the pandemic hit the U.S. in earnest, where 2.3% of India's 1.3 billion people are actually Christians of some kind of the other. 82% are Hindus, 13% are Muslims. There's a great need there. World mission will only get done, though, if we all work together. We cannot think in terms of doing this by ourselves. Americans are used to working in powerful Western ways and and getting a few natives, should we say, to, to help us do our mission. But we always hold the money and the power. And we will have to release power to mature Christian nationals and live out a servant approach to mission. We are partners in mission with followers of Jesus all over the world. The third world missionary movement has actually shown, though, that they don't actually need our money. They're not waiting for it. They, they will do it with or without us or on very little money. And yet, whose money is it that you hold in your hands? in your bank accounts, in your properties, in your stocks, in your bonds. Is it yours or is it God's? The fact that we have great resources means that we have great responsibilities. Jesus told us that to whom much is given, much is required. And if that mammoth task of world evangelization is to be completed, no one ministry can complete it all. We need each other. And it will not be completed by professional global outreach workers alone, not by pastors, not by missionaries alone. Some of my friends in India, evangelists and pastors with little or no outside support and very little biblical education, are spreading the word of God in very difficult circumstances. They travel through treacherous rivers during monsoons to preach the gospel, One actually almost died, almost drowned in crossing a river. They reach animus who worship rocks and trees and and sacrifice their chickens, pigs, and goats uh, to please the gods on stakes like the one in this picture. Some new believers are run out of the villages because they follow Jesus. But lives are being changed there because these keen global workers, Indian workers, are willing to learn languages other than their own, to learn customs other than their own, to face huge obstacles going up in the mountains because the gospel has changed their lives. So all Christians must be mobilized for sharing the message, if that message is going to get out. It's estimated that over 90% of the world's Christians are not mobilized at all for mission, for evangelism, either at home or abroad. I mean, imagine what it would be like in your workplace if 90% of the people did no work at all. (laughs) Maybe that's true in some of your workplaces, I don't know. 
We need everyone to be involved in the task of world witness, of sharing the good news of Jesus to every creature in the world. You know, there are many closed countries in the world today. And so some will need to go as tent makers in those countries. You'll remember that the Apostle Paul didn't just preach the gospel, he made tents to make his living. And so some people will need to go with skills and various vocational uh, abilities to allow them to get into those closed countries. But their main task will still be to spread the gospel of Jesus. India is one of those closed countries. Every time I go through passport control, I pray that they will not uh, reject me from coming in or that when I leave the country, they will not stamp my passport, do not return. But the only way people will be reached long-term is by people with those skills and those regular jobs going to these countries. Traditional long-term missionaries cannot go in their capacity as a missionary. An estimated 83% of the world's non-Christian populations regard in countries closed to traditional missionary approaches. That's approximately 5.5 billion unreachable people by traditional global outreach workers. It's hard to think about missions now, I know, in this pandemic. I mean, things have changed. We've heard from our missionaries that we support that things are different than they were before. They, they can't do the things that they did before. And we will have to rethink mission as churches have had to rethink what church is. We will need more people who can help spread the gospel through the internet, developers who can produce good content in many languages, which can travel anywhere where there's a cellular connection. Some can be sent in mission right from here. But many are still on the outside of that digital divide. And we will still need people who are willing to sacrifice their lifestyle, change things, live in a new culture, learn some new ways of thinking for a more significant life and mission. You've probably heard a phrase that's become a classic in world mission. Many of you know about Jim Elliott, who was one of the five American missionaries killed in their attempt to evangelize the Wiorani people of Ecuador. But he knew the lessons of losing and gaining. Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We need to be willing to lose some things to let go of some things that we can't keep anyway so that we can gain some things that we will never, ever lose. First of all, let's let go of our money. You're going to lose it anyway. Why not invest it in something that will change people's lives? Most of us have wasted plenty of money. So why not invest it in something that will make a difference in the world? Here at Blossom Valley, we're supporting global outreach workers in various parts of the world through our faith promise commitments and our regular giving to missions. And I'm sure that many of you here also give additional money to missions that's that's never counted here. 
like me, you probably sponsor children in, through various organizations in various parts of the world uh, who need health and schooling in Christian organizations. And you're providing clean water through your recycling projects. However, today, I'd like you to consider giving even more generously and trust God to provide for you and what the church needs. You will never lose by giving to others. And maybe God has blessed you in a significant way, and you haven't yet responded, even in this pandemic, to a big way, a big commitment that really counts on faith to put our trust in Him. The second thing is, we need to let go of our children and grandchildren. I I know, I know, that sounds crazy. And I know we love them, and we don't want them to go too far away. But do we need to keep giving our children the message that they must spend their lives preparing to make lots of money so that they can live comfortably and accumulate a lot of things so that they can be happy? Many Christian young people are wanting to make a contribution and make a difference in the world. We can encourage them to listen to God's call. We need to be preparing our children to care for the world now, to hear the good news of Jesus, instead of grooming them to be rich, powerful, and often selfish people. Thirdly, we need to let go of our narrow vision of the world. Expand your vision. Do it specifically and intentionally. Make friends with some people from another ethnic group or race. Uh, have college international students in your home if they're, if they're still around. Many international students spend three or four years here and, and leave America without ever entering an American home. This is a mission field at our doorstep. And work with some local campus ministries. Some I know from from the church uh, that I'm involved with adopted some students from China for home visits and brought them to church. And they became involved in a Chinese church then, and some of them became Christians with a whole new way of life. And they take that back to their country. Go on a short-term or a long-term mission. And pray as a family for these global outreach workers. Pray for various countries. Learn about those countries and their needs. And ask God to do something special in that country. Learn about its customs, its its cultures, and open your vision of the world. The Lord said to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 49, It's too small a thing, too small, too tiny, For you to be my servants, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. To the churches in San Jose, the Lord may well be saying, It's just too small a thing for you to be my servant, just to restore the people here in San Jose, to minister to the Christians in your church. I will also make you a light to the nations, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So as we close this message, I want you to listen to this song and and watch pictures from this film, The End of the Spear, where it's the same one I mentioned before, where Jim Elliott and his missionary friends were killed in their mission. But later, many of those people 
became followers of Jesus and have changed their whole way of life. The full movies on Amazon Prime if you want to watch. The movie's older, so the quality will not be great. I hope you can listen to God's word to follow him.
Shall we pray? Lord, will you lead us out in mission? May we still be known as a church who supports, who sins, who goes out to the world because we want that gospel, that good news to get to the world. I thank you for what you're doing in the lives of the people here. And I pray that we'll always follow you in whatever you call us to do, whether it's to stay here or whether it's to go around the world. Help us to be willing to talk to our neighbors now. Help us to reach out and speak the words of good news to others. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Shalom. I want to invite you to meet the Lord with me in communion because this is one of those special places where he meets us in a special way. I hope you have some uh, grape juice and some bread or maybe even a cracker, which is probably more similar to the original mot sauce, of which I I have a piece here. We don't have a lot left at the moment uh, because we've had home communion a lot these days. And maybe you're like me, you're getting used to it. And I find that some of my most meaningful communion experiences have often been with a small group of just family or friends, or even sometimes on my own. I find in those experiences I can do it a little differently, and I can take some time, more time maybe to examine myself. We still miss being in church services with all of the people because there's something about communion that's about community as well. But especially when I've been in different countries around the world, I've discovered different practices and different ways that bring the meaning over a little bit more clearly and make me more connected with people. So let me share with you just a few of those experiences that I've had with people in other parts of the world. I remember being in China on a short-term mission trip back in 2006 in, in the southern part of China there. We were there mainly to support some of the children that didn't have enough money to pay their school fees. They walk across mountains for miles in order to get to school and sometimes even have to stay overnight in a farmer's house there in order to be able to go to school. And we distributed what seems and looks like a a lot of money to those children, but they were simply to help those children be able to go to school. We stayed in a very small guest house while we were there, and three of us from our church, the Dutch lady who was in charge of the ministry, and three Chinese Christians sat on rock-hard beds in a small room for worship and communion. We'd slept on those beds the night before. We had some white grape juice, which they had found somewhere, and, and it was in very fragile, I've never seen so fragile, of plastic cups and some bread. And we shared some thoughts from the scriptures. I I don't even remember too much about that. But we didn't know if our room was being bugged by the Chinese authorities or not. But we seven, from different backgrounds, were meeting the Lord together at his invitation, sharing our common unity in the Lord's table. 
Four years ago, I was invited to speak at a large Christian convention in India. This video shows you just how serious Christians take their opportunity to join together in fellowship with other Christians. And that's just the welcome dance. But our Sunday service, uh, lasting over four hours, was, was among the most interesting experience for me, especially the Lord's Supper. They counted around 4,000 people who had been there at that convention, and I looked at the communion cups that were all set out there, and I saw there were about 200, maybe 300 cups. And I was wondering, how is this going to work? But what I'd learned is that every Indian learns how to share water with one another in a bottle by putting their thumb up to their lips so that the bottle never touches their lips. And so it's safe, at least in a a pre-COVID area. And so as people came forward sharing communion, Elders from different churches would refill the communion cups after they were used, and everyone was served without concern. It made me think that no one has any excuse for not having communion every week, no matter what the trouble is to make sure that it happens. In a small church in India where I was speaking, I I sat behind the communion table wondering how they were all going to take communion with only one glass. And I thought, well, perhaps they're one-cuppers. Some people are. And I've always said, surely God takes away all the germs in the Lord's Supper. The juice had separated a bit because they usually uh, make their juice out of raisins that they boil. And so I figured that the spoon would be to stir up the grape juice before they served it. But later, as they began to pass the cup and the spoon, I saw people taking a spoonful of grape juice and gently tossing it into their mouth. I I was sure when it came to my turn that I would throw it all over myself, but fortunately, I did not. It was a different way of of, uh, taking communion, but it was meaningful just the same. And I realized that sometimes I don't need to worry It's the Lord that I'm meeting. And to experience that with the body of Christ, of people I didn't even know and didn't speak their language, I was still blessed. Later in a home communion experience in Delhi, uh, we had chapatis for the bread. It's like tortillas and white grape juice, again, boiled from raisins. But each one of us had our own spoon, so I didn't need to be so careful. My friend said it was one of the most meaningful communion experiences he had had. And it was so for me, too. Just last February in India, we had some great church services in villages. But none of them had communion in the Sundays we were there. And I always say, if the singing's not to your taste and and the sermon is not that strong, there's always communion. I had some individual communion packets with me, so I decided to read aloud the gospel records of Jesus in Gethsemane, the Lord's Supper and and the crucifixion in Luke for several days, and I just had communion with the Lord, just Jesus and me, and it was meaningful. It was good. 
So if there are just a few of you or you're alone today, it's okay. You can still meet the Lord in communion. And just listen as I read this from the message of God's word in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it's so centrally important. I received my instructions from the master himself and passed them on to you. The master Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took bread. And having given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he did the same thing with the cup. This cup is my blood, my new covenant with you. And every time you drink this cup, remember me. What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the master. You'll be drawn back to this meal again and again until the master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on Jesus in his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be part of? Examine your motives. Test your heart. Come to this meal in holy awe. So Jesus invites us to take the bread and eat it together. He invites us to drink from the cup. Let's pray. Give thanks as Jesus did. Thank you, Lord, for this bread which you have given for us to to use to remember you. We thank you especially that you died for us, for my sins that I don't deserve, that it's grace, and that you love me. Thank you, Lord. So let's eat some bread together. And as Jesus took the cup, so we drink. We drink remembering that we're in a covenant with the Lord. And we remember the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, which is for all of us. God bless you.